Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. And today we're continuing our series called Understanding the Book of Revelation. Revelation teaches that there's a blessing in reading and responding to its message. But for many, the book is either filled with codes or confusion. And we miss Revelation's own focus on Jesus and his call to faithfulness as a result. Today we're looking at the two witnesses. And while it's one of the most debated chapters in Revelation, it encourages us in the refuge God provides and the way that we can reach people who are resistant to the good news. I remember when I first began to read the Bible. I was in my fourth year of university and I'd become convinced that Jesus was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. I was experiencing so much hope and peace because of Jesus that I wanted other people to know him. So after class one day, I began to explain to one of my best friends what had brought me to faith. I told him all the reasons why I found Jesus so compelling and how I had decided to trust in him. I was convinced that he'd have to be as excited as I was. <laughs> Finally, I asked him, what do you make of all that? And he said, it might be true, but I can't imagine how it would have anything to do with my life. It was almost as if he was saying, if you're looking for a religion, that's probably as good as any, but I have no need or interest in God. Many of you have experienced the exact same thing. Maybe you long for a friend to know Jesus or a son or a daughter or your parents or your coworkers. Maybe you wonder what it would take to reach them. I believe that Revelation chapter 11 tells us. In fact, it gives us three principles for sharing your faith in the last days. The first principle is you're secure even when you're being trampled by the world. What keeps us from telling people about Jesus is all that we fear that we might lose. The first section of our chapter today encourages us that we have a refuge in Christ even when we're facing losses. We're secure even when we're being trampled by the world. If you have your Bible handy, turn with me to Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, unless you're a big fan of prophecy, these words don't immediately mean much to you. Let's start with the part that everyone agrees on. When John is giving a measuring rod here, and he's told to measure the temple and the altar, he's reenacting a similar event in the life of another prophet named Ezekiel. In chapter 10, he's told to eat a scroll the way Ezekiel did. Now he's told to measure the temple the way Ezekiel did. When Ezekiel measured the temple, in his vision, it was a way of promising the people of God that although they were about to be conquered by the Babylonians, their temple would be rebuilt and established by God. The question is, why is John being given the same kind of vision here? By this point, the temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Romans 25 years earlier. Is the message that John and the churches to whom he's writing to are to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem? That can't be it. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament, for instance, is full of warnings about turning back to Judaism and so uh, walking away from Christ. 
in the last century, it used to be popular to work around this by saying that maybe Orthodox Jews in the end times or in the Great Tribulation have rebuilt the temple, and when they embrace Jesus as Messiah, they'll offer memorial sacrifices in honor of him. But this is a vision given to John. He's the one supposed to be doing the measuring, and that whole idea would have been completely foreign to him. Today, most scholars believe that the temple here is referring to God's people, the church, because that language is used throughout the New Testament. For example, it says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In fact, the mission of the church is actually described as building a new temple with living stones. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. When John is given this vision to measure the temple of God, it's an encouragement to him and to those who hear it that despite all the opposition, Jesus is still empowering his people to build his church. It's supposed to comfort us. It's here to encourage us. But at the same time, we're warned of the dangers. While God's people can find refuge at the altar and worship in the holy place, it says that the temple court will be overrun and the nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. The people of God are spiritually secure, but also physically vulnerable. Christ is building his church, but the opposition is great and the enemy has breached the walls of the city. The fact that the length of time is prescribed shows us that God's in control. But it points back to a prophecy in Daniel about a three and a half year period of intense persecution for the people of God. Like all the numbers in Revelation, this one is probably symbolic too. And we'll look at that later. But for now, just feel the impact of the vision itself. The world is attacking the church. It's opposed to God and his word and taking out its frustration on God's people. So we should expect suffering. But God is still building his church. He's given a builder's tool to John, but he's 90 at this point and in exile on the island of Patmos. So it's not as if he can do the job by himself. We're all being built as, as living stones and we each have a role to play. While the opposition is near, God is in our midst and we find courage as we worship him. So the message of verses one and two is that you're secure even when you're being trampled by the world. From there, we move to the, the two witnesses. And the message is that you're called to witness even when the stakes are high. Follow along as I read verses three to six. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, there are some preachers who teach you have to interpret everything in Revelation literally. So they say, for example, that there must be two great prophets coming who will be able to kill people by shooting fire out of their mouths. Now, not only does that sound unchristian, 
but I'm convinced that this passage deliberately tells you not to read it like that. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 3, God gives authority to two witnesses, but then it says in verse 4 that they are, those two witnesses are two olive trees and also two lampstands. There's no way to interpret, interpret that literally. And so my question is, why do you have to take the fire coming out of their mouths literally if you don't take the part about them being olive trees and lampstands literally? The better question to ask in Revelation is, why is it being described like this? What does it refer to? We're reading a vision, not a textbook. So let's start with the witnesses. Can you think of another time in scripture when it talks of the importance of two witnesses? Some of you will think back to Deuteronomy 19.15. There it says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Two witnesses are here establishing the truthfulness of God's message. But they're also called two olive trees. That image comes from Zechariah chapter 4, where the high priest and the governor are referred to as olive trees and are anointed to build the temple. The message there is that it won't happen by human strength, but by God's spirit. It's the book's most famous line, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Finally, the two witnesses, which are two olive trees, are also identified as two lampstands. This is the most obvious illusion in the th of the three, because in Re Revelation 1.20, it specifically says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. There are some who even point out that when the seven churches are addressed, with all but two of them, Jesus says, but this also I have against you. The two lampstands are likely a way of referring to the faithful people of God. You and I have been commissioned as witnesses. We're called to make Jesus known. But what about the fire pouring out from their mouth, that part in verse 5? I think it makes a lot more sense when we read it alongside verse 6. And tell me if any of this sounds familiar. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Do you know anyone who caused a famine on the land during their ministry? Remember Elijah? Do you know how long that famine lasted? Three and a half years. That's the 42 months of verse 2 and the 1260 days of verse 3. And who do you know who has the power to turn water to blood and strike the earth with plagues? That's a reference to Moses, right? The message is that God's people have been commissioned as witnesses after the pot pattern of Elijah and Moses. That warns us that we'll need to carry out our ministry in the shadow of people like Ahab and Pharaoh. But it also means that we're not alone. God will empower us to do more than we're humanly capable of. Now, with Elijah, there were a couple of points in his ministry where that meant that he literally called down fire from heaven. And maybe you're hoping that God would give that power to his people again. <laughs> you might remember the response of two of the disciples of Jesus to a Samaritan village that re rejected Jesus's ministry in Luke 9.54. They asked whether they could call down fire from heaven on them. 
but Jesus would have none of it. It says he turned and rebuked them. In Revelation 11:5, the fire isn't coming down from heaven, it's coming from their mouths. It's almost certainly talking about their message. God said something similar in Jeremiah 5:14. That's where he says, I'm making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Actual fire never came out of Jeremiah's mouth. But the people's rejection of Jeremiah's message sealed their fate. His words lit the flame that confirmed their judgment. And the same is true of our witness today. God has commissioned us to make Jesus known. Sometimes our words are life and they're received with faith. Other times, the same words become fire. They confirm the guilt of the people to whom we speak. Over the years, I've shared the gospel with a lot of people and a lot of people who have refused it. I want them to know Christ's forgiveness and the difference he can make in their lives. But when people reject the gospel, it can make you wonder whether there's a point in telling them at all. This passage encourages me with the fact that even if someone says no to Jesus's gospel invitation, my witness has left them without excuse. I want to give them the clearest, most loving presentation of the good news that I can give them. And if they refuse it, at least they won't be able to say, no one ever told me. So far, we've seen the measuring of the temple in verses 1 and 2 and said that you're secure even when you're being trampled by the world. Then we looked at the two witnesses in verses 3 to 6 and said that the message there is you've been called to witness even when the stakes are high. In verse 7, the vision gets ugly, <laughs> but it also gives us hope. And it teaches us that how you die is the most powerful message you'll ever give. Follow along as I read verses 7 to 14. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet in great fear, fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And, that at, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, just take in the broad strokes of this vision. When the witnesses finish their testimony, they're killed by a beast. Their bodies are just left in the streets as the world celebrates their deaths. Then, three and a half days later, the witnesses are taken up to heaven. And in the aftermath, some of the people are killed in judgment and others give glory to God. Again, it used to be popular to try and literally interpret all of the details of this passage. 
But the passage itself tells us we're not supposed to read it like that. Notice in verse 8, for instance, that this all happens in what's called the great city. We'll see this later in the series, but the great city is referred to as Babylon everywhere else in the book. And there are clear references to Rome. Here, it's symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. And it says it's where their Lord was crucified, which has to be a reference to Jerusalem. Now, there is no place that you can locate geographically, which is all those cities at once. And one of those places isn't a city at all. Egypt's a country. So the great city represents the world powers that promote sin and oppress the people of God. If the great city is a place, the beast is its ruler. We'll look at the beast in more detail in a couple of weeks, but for now, what we need to see is that it martyrs the witnesses. They're killed and left without a burial. It's a picture of the disdain and disrespect that they're treated with. In verse 10, people are so glad to be rid of them that they actually throw a party. And it must be some kind of celebration because they're actually exchanging presents like it's Christmas, but this is more like the anti-Christmas. And the message seems to be that in life, it will often appear as if Christians have lost. Verse 10 is not the happy ending that most people are hoping for. A Christian who's going to keep God's commands faithfully and share God's word boldly needs to be prepared for the short end of the stick. If we're going to follow Jesus, we need to remind ourselves where his life ended up. The thanks he got for his sermons and the healings was some nails and a cross. And we need to be prepared for the same. But that wasn't the end of his story, and it's not the end of ours. Look at the words that open verse 11. It says, but afterwards. If the witnesses shared God's word and power for three and a half years, their enemies gloated over their deaths for three and a half days. Their defeat is short-lived, but it's followed by resurrection. The breath of life enters them and they stand on their feet. And here the language is taken directly from Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. And they're called up to heaven in a cloud. Now, before you stop reading and decide you know what this vision means, let me ask you the question that I've been asking you throughout this series. It's a question you need to constantly ask as you're reading these incredible visions. Does any of this sound familiar? Have I heard anything in scripture that sounds like this? And let me give you some help. Again, there are two witnesses that we've said represent the faithful church. They share the gospel in word and deed powerfully and boldly for three and a half years. But then when their mission is complete, they're killed in a great city where their Lord was crucified. It looks like all is lost, but then three and a half days later, they're raised from the dead and then taken up to heaven in a cloud. There's a great earthquake and many people are struck with awe and give glory to God. Have you heard anything like that before? If you're, th if you're thinking, well, that sounds a lot like the life of Jesus, but it's probably just a coincidence. If that's you, then you need to go back to the start of this series and listen again. Because this is what the whole book does. It describes the events of the last days in the language and imagery of other biblical events to help us to see them through that lens. 
So when I've been saying not to take these visions strictly, literally, it's not because I want to avoid the message. It's because I want you to hear the message. And I actually think the message is pretty clear and ultimately encouraging. You and I have been called to follow in Jesus's footsteps. That means obedience to God when it's not popular. That means sharing the good news, even when we fear a cool reception. Knowing how Jesus's life ended, we need to be prepared for the losses. But that is the path to life. As Jesus said in Mark 8.35, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. But remember how this passage ends in verse 13. It's the death of the witnesses that ultimately results in the people finally giving glory to God. It's the resurrection that's our most powerful witness. And so let's end by returning to the story of my friend. He wouldn't hear the gospel. He didn't want to listen to my words. And it's the same with the two witnesses. But in their death, there's a power that gives weight to their testimony. People need to see us die with the hope of eternity. They need to see Christians face loss with the peace that God gives. They need to see believers sacrifice with joy because they have treasure in heaven. That's how you show the reality of your faith in the last days. That's how you make the gospel real to a skeptical world. And that's how some of the most resistant people will eventually come to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Let's all ask God for the strength to follow Jesus to the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter what we see in our world, no matter the opposition that would come, we know that we have security in your presence. We know that we have a refuge before you. And we know that through faith in Jesus Christ, we can come directly into your presence. We enter the Holy of Holies. So give us courage. Give us the courage to follow you when obedience isn't popular. Give us the courage to share that good news of the gospel, even when we're not sure how people will respond. Help us to accompany those words with real action. Root us so firmly in the hope that we have in eternity that we can gladly sacrifice and face the losses of anything that this world would offer. Ultimately, Father, we pray that that you would make our witness effective. We pray that uh, through your spirit, you would draw people to yourself. And we'd ask you to do that even now. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to understand the messages of the two witnesses and how to share your faith in the last days. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca.
God bless and see you next time.